Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. Today, we are talking to Jim Steyer, founder of Common Sense Media, a nonprofit organization that promotes safe media and entertainment for parents and children. He's just published Which Side of History, a collection of essays on how technology is affecting our kids, education, democracy, and society. Jim started out as an elementary school teacher and now teaches a course on civil rights and liberties at Stanford University. Having founded Common Sense Media as a consumer rating site for TV, movies, and apps, it has since grown to become the leading child advocacy group in the United States. Having campaigned successfully for privacy, data protection, and more regulation for tech, he is not the most popular dinner guest at the homes of Silicon Valley's tech titans. Perhaps most interestingly, Common Sense also provides a privacy rating system for digital education products that are being adopted in the classroom as well as the digital citizenship course delivered in 100,000 schools across the U.S. It's basically the rules of the road. They need the basic driver's ed, right? If you think about it, giving your kid an iPad or a computer or even a smartphone is like handing him the keys to a car. They can go off in any direction. And basically, digital citizenship is driver's ed for the internet, and every kid should be required to take it. The time when technology is essential to remote learning Jim believes there has never been a more important time to hold tech companies accountable for our kids and for our families. Jim Steyer, great to have you here. Great to be with you, Jenny. So you've just published Which Side of History, a book of essays that explores the damage tech has done to us humans and to our democracy. It talks about how technology hurts kids, where big tech went wrong, tech and race, and how we can fix this and do good and not evil. Why did you write this book? Because tech has this incredible impact on all of our lives today. And it's literally an existential issue in society. Here we are facing perhaps the most important election in my lifetime. And when you look at the impact of technology just on the democratic process and on the 2020 election, you realize how prevalent technology is in all of our lives, how important it is in particular to kids and families. And therefore, we need to hold the tech industry broadly accountable. And that's why I called it which side of history, because I think that is the question we have to ask today to the major technology leaders of the world. Which side of history do they want their companies to be on? And which side of history are they on now? It's not a monolithic industry, Jenny. It depends on which company you're talking about. I would argue that, say, Facebook and Instagram are on the wrong side of history right now. They're helping to undermine democratic norms in the United States and all around the world. They're amplifying hate and racist messages, all under the guise sort of a sophomoric explanation of free speech. So to me, they are definitely on the wrong side of history right now. They're also hoovering up people's data without them knowing it and selling it at massive profits to people. So I think it depends on the company. You had this quote in The Guardian, which I really liked. With more than 2 billion users, Facebook is bigger than Christianity. It's true, Jenny. It is bigger in Christianity in terms of its reach. And it's run really by one person. But the problem is many of the practices 
and policies that it's chosen to follow have been bad for humanity and bad for society. I don't think that would be said for Christianity, by the way, but who's to say? But I think that's an incredibly important issue because the power that's concentrated in a small number of companies and a handful of individuals at this stage in our society, not just in the US, but in global democracies and in global economies, et cetera, is just phenomenal. And how that power is wielded is incredibly important for all of us. I want to read you an excerpt from the book, which will be familiar to you because you wrote it. Smartphones and social media have chummed a surveillance and attention economy, a virtual arms race for your and my attention, designed to invade our privacy, monetize our secrets, and steal every waking moment of our lives. Not by accident, we are lonelier, sadder, more anxious, and more divided as a result. Perhaps most disturbing, the most vulnerable laboratory animals for tech-sweeping, unregulated, and truly pioneering social experiment have been an entire generation of innocent, unwitting kids, including my own four children. So that's pretty much putting the gauntlet down. Here's what I want to know. How much do you blame them for creating addictive tech, and how much do you hold us responsible for buying it and using it? There's responsibility on both sides. We couldn't have passed the landmark 2018 California Consumer Privacy Act without the collaboration of Apple, Salesforce, Microsoft. We also on education have done really significant things with Google and even YouTube. So we're not anti-tech. That said, we have seen extraordinary, and in some cases really negative impacts on various aspects of society, whether it's our kids' brains or their attention and distraction issues, or whether it's on democratic institutions and norms from some of these platforms. And they need to be held accountable because essentially it's been a wild west environment for the past 15 years. Government, at least in the United States, has been missing in action. Europe has actually been more engaged in this issue than the United States has been. But the US government has been largely missing in action. So you've had an unregulated environment dominated by a handful of small but extremely powerful, extremely wealthy companies. And some of the things they brought to us have been good and have, have changed society for the better. But there are many, many downsides that we've not addressed. And I think we're at this existential moment where you have to ask which side of history do these companies want to be on? When you are talking about the hacking of an American election, not just in 2016, but there's massive fear right now that Facebook and Twitter in particular are going to influence both the outcome of and the aftermath of the 2020 election in what we used to think of as sort of the leading democracy of the world, then things have really changed dramatically. And the role of those companies and the fact that they are not held accountable for what's on their platforms in many cases, and that they have made, in some cases, terrible decisions to amplify falsehoods and, and racism and hate speech and others is simply too significant an issue to ignore. And that's why I don't look at which side of history as a book necessarily. I look at it as a campaign for the next two years that we should all be involved in. What led you on this crusade to try to protect the data and privacy of kids and to really challenge an industry which I'd point out to our listeners are in your backyard and are many of your good friends? So it's interesting. You have to remember, I am a complete and total Luddite. I can barely turn on my computer. <laughs> my kids think it's a joke 
that I run the biggest tech advocacy group in the world. My life work has been as a child advocate and as a school teacher. And now I've been a Stanford professor for over 30 years, but essentially I'm a teacher and a child advocate. And when I started Common Sense Media 17 years ago, the point was actually to create AARP for children, the biggest constituency base ever for investing in kids. But issues like healthcare, education, early childhood education, special needs children, et cetera. At that point, 17 years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was like in first grade or something. <laughs> and, and there was no Facebook. There was no Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or YouTube. I was just trying to create the leading child advocacy group in the United States. And we created a ratings and review platform, Common Sense Media, basically to be the consumer reports guide of media for kids and families. And the idea was parents would join the organization because they wanted free movie reviews, but then they would start getting interested in children's issues. So that's the genesis. And then lo and behold, tech took off. And suddenly Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple became the largest, most powerful companies in the history of the world. And there we were, the leading advocacy group around children, but also we were in the tech space. So even the completely clueless Luddite, Jim Steyer, recognized that. And because I'm a con law professor at Stanford, you mentioned privacy. So if you understand basic norms of American constitutional law, privacy is a fundamental right under the US Constitution. It's the basis of all the abortion cases like Roe v. Wade is privacy and, and also search and seizure law. So. When the tech leaders 15 years ago, Eric Schmidt, Mark Zuckerberg started saying, privacy is passe, norms change. You're like, wait a minute, it's a fundamental right. How could you say that? And it actually helps to be a dummy and a Luddite like I am, because you see it at a high level. And what you could see was technology was shaping everybody's life, our broader society, but also my kids, your kids, everybody kids waking moments, particularly for the kids who are digital natives. And there was no organization that was speaking out on behalf of consumers and on kids and families. Yes, I know the people who run all the tech companies, that's correct. And in some cases they are my friends, but that doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable. And they don't like it when we criticize them. But we do the same with the big media companies too, Jenny, because who's gonna hold them accountable on behalf of children? And, and by the way, that is the key for us. We view everything through a kid partisan lens not a democratic lens, a Republican lens, a conservative or liberal lens. It's what is good for children and families. Now, when you see democratic norms being undermined, like I believe they are today, and it's incumbent upon an organization like Common Sense Media, not just to speak out on behalf of children, but also to talk about fundamental democratic norms. You just mentioned a little bit ago that you were a teacher. What did you teach? So our mom was a school teacher in Harlem in the South Bronx for 35 years. So between high school and college, I taught with my mom for a year in Harlem. And then after I graduated from college, I was a school teacher for a couple of years in Hell's Kitchen and the South Bronx. So, and then I taught second, third and fifth grade reading and, and math. As a school teacher, I basically taught, you know, second, third and fifth grade. And then as a Stanford professor, I teach civil rights and civil liberties, not what I do in my day job at Common Sense Media. When I listen to you talking about the potential threats and the actual threats of big tech, it scares me. And our kids are learning online. They are learning with these tools right now. This isn't a perspective. What role should technology be? Should it be in the classrooms? It's there. It's actually, in many places, the only thing we have. Do we have the protections we need for children in the classroom right now with the technology they're using? 
Overall, yes. So Common Sense Media has a platform called Common Sense Education. We have 100,000 member schools. We have over a million teacher members. They all use our digital citizenship curriculum, which I call driver's ed for the internet. And we also have created the first privacy rating system ever for digital education products that are in the classroom. So we have facilitated uh, tech in the classroom. And when COVID-19 hit in March, we created a large platform with folks like Sal Khan and PBS and others, but we're the centerpiece of it called Wide Open School, which is a distance learning platform that millions of people and teachers are using now for distance learning. So Common Sense actually agrees with everything you just said about tech in the classroom. It's here to stay. And by the way, it'll never be the same post COVID-19 because kids have learned distance learning. Teachers have had to learn how to teach on a Zoom screen, et cetera. It's all about how those platforms are used. But we believe this is the future. Tech used wisely can actually be a huge advantage in education, particularly for low-income disadvantaged kids who need personalized learning. And that's why Common Sense Media has put so many millions and millions of dollars into education tech with people like Bill Gates and Mark Benioff and Michael Dell, because we believe that technology, comma, used wisely, comma, is an incredible learning enhancer. And so talk to me about that privacy rating, because that sounds like an important thing that maybe people could use really broadly. So what is it that you're rating? Can I, as a teacher, get a rating on whether I'm going to name a company? Quizlet is a safe company for me to use in the classroom. You totally can. And you can go to Common Sense Org right now, press the button, look it up, and you'll see the privacy rating for Quizlet. I have no idea what it is, but you absolutely could. What happened was this. We decided Congress was dysfunctional, but we could pass basically the national privacy law in the state of California. So we wrote the California Consumer Privacy Act and and it passed amazingly. And we split the tech industry. So Google and Facebook opposed it, but Apple, Salesforce, Microsoft, HP supported it. And it was like GDPR happening in Europe, the CCPA happening in California. At that point, we realized how are teachers and consumers gonna know if apps or games like Quizlet have our, do they follow good privacy practices? So we created at Common Sense Media a whole program about privacy ratings and reviews. And it's now the only one of its kind in the world. And it's really successful. We have a team of experts and lawyers who comb through these platforms and look at both policies and practices. And that's huge. And so you feel that in the classroom at this moment, for the most part, there are plenty of caveats in there. Kids are pretty safe. For the most part, yes. Back in 2015, I should give this guy credit. So the head of the California State Senate, Daryl Steinberg, who's now the mayor of Sacramento, California, he and I wrote the SOPIPA, the Student Privacy Act in California, which is the law of the land now. And so, yes, most schools now are now protected pretty well by student privacy laws. And we wrote them. And they're not perfect. And that's why your caveats are thoughtful, Kenny. But yes, you can be fairly confident that if your kid is being exposed to apps and games and courseware in the classroom, Khan Academy type content, we do rate them for privacy and most of them are okay. And, and the truth is the privacy issues are much bigger in the consumer area than in the education area. That said, it's an incredibly important area. So you said at the end of the introduction of the book, big tech stepped up in COVID-19 to protect the interests of kids, schools, and families. Did you feel like they generally did well by kids in COVID-19? Generally, you can't lump them all together. For example, when we created Wide Open School, the key partners were Google, because they're the huge player in education. They're the dominant platform in education. 
Zoom, Eric Yuan, the CEO, we had men, and they have big privacy issues, by the way, which we worked with them on because they weren't prepared for the onslaught of Zoom in every classroom. Microsoft, Bill Gates has obviously been a huge proponent of, of education in the classroom. I think those companies really stepped up. And then I think you had companies like Facebook and Instagram that continued to amplify hate speech and racism. And that's why we started the Stop Hate for Profit campaign with Sasha Baron Cohen and the ADL. You just said something that sort of gives me pause, which is power is concentrating in a very small number of companies. Google's stranglehold on the industry is terrifying. And so I guess I go back and say, do they need to be broken up? Do we need to do something to make sure they don't become too powerful in the education space? Once you talk to teachers, you realize they all use Google Classroom for their lesson plans. That's how they do it, right? They are the dominant player because of Chromebooks, right? They are so big because their Chromebooks cost $100 as opposed to $600 for an iPad. And for the most part, they've been really collaborative with us on this, but they sort of let teachers do their own thing if you watch their performance in the education arena, right? And they're not a, an LMS, a learning management system, right? And they've resisted becoming an LMS. So you have people like Schoology or Canvas or other people trying to dominate that business. And common sense, we own the digital citizenship piece of this, and we just tried to work with whoever the players are. I think it's one of the most important questions for Google in terms of which side of history Google wants to be on. They have a chance to actually help transform education, particularly for poor kids. The other thing is we have this huge digital divide problem in the United States where basically 30% of students in the United States going into COVID-19 did not have either adequate connectivity or devices in order to access distance learning. And 10% of teachers didn't. 30% of students, and you're mostly thinking of poor kids, black and brown kids. It's an incredibly big issue. And some of the tech companies have stepped up because remember, it's a device issue, but it's a connectivity issue. So that means it matters what AT&T and Comcast and Verizon and T-Mobile do. And I am optimistic that we can close the digital divide once and for all. And that requires the participation of the tech industry. And it also requires government funding. The government has been asleep at the switch on this stuff, right? So that's one of the challenges you face as well. Let me ask you about parents, because wide open school is a really good way for you to, your two worlds collide, right? Because you have this education business, you have this massive consumer business. Here's my question. Do you think COVID-19 changed the way parents view their education and will they become better advocates for their kids? Because for the most part, most parents aren't. I think so. It's a really interesting question because here's the thing. We're not going to go back. Technology is now in everybody's home. And, you know, Common Sense, of course, is the number one platform in the U.S. and globally saying restrict screen time, limit screen time. But when your kid is using a Zoom screen to go to school, how do you do that? So many of our time limits have gone out the window. Many of our sort of a healthy media tech diet for your kids have had to be adjusted because your kid is in front of a screen in order to go to school. Even when kids are all full-time back in school and the normal classroom setting, they're going to be using computers more. And I think we're never going to be the same again. I think that technology is now firmly embedded in education. And I think it's going to change not just K through 12 education, but higher education. For example, I'm a Stanford professor. As you know, I have a class right now with nearly 2,000 students in it. Last night, I had an education class with Margaret Spellings, former Secretary of Education under Bush, John King, one of the two Secretaries of Education under Barack Obama, and Linda Darling-Hammond, my Stanford colleague, who basically oversees all the education state of California. 
And it was all about technology and education. So the, there is no question that education is being transformed by technology. And the question is, will it be good? But it's happening. And we feel at Common Sense, we have to be part of that. Can you explain to our listeners what Section 203 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act is and why it matters? First of all, it's Section 230, Jenny. Oh, I'm dyslexic. Sorry. That's fair enough. Section 230 is basically blanket immunity for the big tech companies in terms of the content of their platforms. If you think about how communications law works in the United States, broadcast, cable, radio, newspapers are regulated in terms of the content on their platforms, but the because they're publishers. And so we have a whole regulatory structure around that. The internet companies, because of Section 230, are not regulated. Now, their defense was, well, it's all user, mostly user-generated content, so we shouldn't be held accountable for that. And the answer is, of course, you should be held accountable for that and you should be regulated. I have a piece in Which Side of History that I wrote with Bruce Reed, who's the chief policy advisor for Joe Biden now, which basically says we have to fundamentally reform Section 230 to require stronger content moderation to protect kids and families and our democracy. 230 is what protects Zuckerberg and his pals at Facebook from being held accountable for all the amplification of racism and hate speech on their platform. And the interesting thing is now people on both sides of the aisle are calling for the overhaul of Section 230. It was written in 1996 when Mark Zuckerberg was in diapers. Yeah, we could get into the whole Joe Biden, Hunter Biden. Let me just ask you, should Twitter have blocked that post? I think so. This is not a First Amendment issue, right? This is where people, they, all this free speech baloney gets confused. That's a corporate responsibility issue. So I am responsible for the content on the Common Sense Media platform ultimately, right? So if you found stuff that was offensive or hateful or racist or whatever on our platform, you could ultimately blame me. I mean, you're responsible for the content on this podcast, Jenny, right? Whoever you and your distributor are responsible for that. Okay, Twitter's responsible for what's on its platform. So is Facebook. I thought in that case that they should have taken down that because it was obviously dishonest and false. And so, yes, and that's their responsibility, particularly during an election where the election has been repeatedly undermined from a, from a democratic and, and civil discourse standpoint by, by false and misinformation, disinformation. Right. I mean, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but if if we, if Facebook really does have more users than Christianity or a greater reach than Christianity, then we are going to have to have some fairly significant content moderation teams working on this. Too bad. They're a trillion dollar company. They can afford it. And if not, they should be held accountable and liable. I am sorry. That's the way this world should work. They've gotten off scot-free. And look at the damage they've done to democratic norms. Look at the damage. I'm not, look, Facebook's done a lot of good stuff too, I guess. And you can talk about all the connecting people, you know, but they, they are really on the wrong side of history right now. And, and I am happy to say that. And I have said that directly to Mark and Cheryl and Nick Clegg and the other people who are running that company. They have made certain decisions that are absolutely in the worst interests of our society and our democracy and of kids and families too. So they need, they should be held accountable and they should change fundamentally on some of those practices. They must really love having you over for dinner parties. Oh, they really love me. No. Last topic I want to delve into is your digital citizenship course. I 
speak to teachers all the time. They are so overwhelmed with every single thing that is asked of them. They need to be teaching computer science. They need to be teaching coding. They need to teach sex ed. They need to teach uh, how to ride a bike. They have to feed kids. They have to keep them safe. I mean, there are so many things we ask of teachers. Why digital literacy? Why digital citizenship? Why is it important? Because it's basically the rules of the road for all the stuff you just talked about, Jenny. They need the basic driver's ed, right? You're basically, if you think about it, giving your kid an iPad or a computer or even a smartphone is like handing him the keys to a car. They can go off in any direction. And basically, digital citizenship is driver's ed for the internet, and every kid should be required to take it. And we have built this curriculum. It's literally 100,000 member schools now, almost slightly under 100,000 member schools, over a million teacher members. In the U.S. alone, we'll probably have 20 plus million students who take that class this year. It's essentially, it's sort of the gateway class. You have to take it in order to be able to do all the things you just said. And in a world of distance learning, it's safe, ethical, responsible use of the internet and social media. And we own the field, Common Sense does, because we created a curriculum around it with colleagues at Harvard and Stanford, and it's the state-of-the-art one. And we're bringing it to the UK, where you live, by the way. I've met with the, the head of education, the head education minister twice about this, and I think it'll probably be in UK schools sometime in the next year, year and a half, and all, because it's a no-brainer. If you're going to give your kid the keys to the car, they need to learn how to drive the car. If you're going to give them the keys to the internet and social media, they need to learn how to drive safely and ethically and responsible on it. That's why we have the class. People love it. It's free. It's paid for, by the way, by some of the big tech guys individually, which is good. Jim, since you have some particularly deep insights into politics and some deep connections, will Joe Biden win? I hate to make predictions, but if you look at the data and barring the corruption of our democracy, it looks good, I would say. Again, I, we're a nonpartisan organization and Common Sense Media does not take positions and I don't on particular candidate. But I would say, if you look at the data right now, it's hard. We Our system is so complicated because of the electoral college and other things that I think should be done away with at some point soon. But I, I it, it will, we will see. But I think that the data certainly indicates that the worst thing would be if our democracy was undermined by by the Donald Trumps of the world who are, you know, calling. That would be terrible. I think it's really important that we have a clean, decisive electoral result in the United States and that we move forward as a country, but also as a global leader again. And so this is the imp most important election of our lifetimes. And I am praying for a positive result, but common sense stays out of politics. We're gonna work on the impact of technology on your life and my life and everyone's lives, uh, no matter who the president of the United States is. All right, rapid fire questions. What is your favorite book about education? I think Nick Lemon's book, The Big Test about the SAT is really interesting. I think both of the two books Paul Tuff has written recently about education, one of which is about the SAT, the other which is about poor kids, are fabulous books about education. The Years That Matter Most was Paul's most recent book. It was an excellent book. I highly recommend it. What is your favorite book not about education? The Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy. <laughs> wow. Did not see that one coming. Okay. Love, love I love Pat it. Conroy. Love Pat yeah. Conroy. No, I, I had a summer reading those and boy, did I love those. Um, okay. Last question. What are you binge watching? So Sa Sasha Baron Cohen has been our partner on which side of history. So I just binge watched his, the, the TV series he made last year called The Spy. And I'm about to watch Borat too, because- <laughs> 
I've had to work with Sasha for the last year and a half and he's hysterical. And I can only imagine Borat too. But I watched a European show, The Bureau. It's really an interesting show. It's, it's, a, it's a Canal Plus French show. Fantastic. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be on with you, Jenny. What struck me most about this conversation was the fact that Common Sense Media now offers privacy ratings on EdTech products in the classroom. At a moment where a lot of the world is still learning online, it is helpful to know that there's someone tracking whether companies are actually protecting student data. I liked the analogy of driver's ed for digital literacy. If we're gonna send kids on the super highway that is the internet, we might wanna teach them some of the rules of the road. Finally, I was impressed by Jim's conviction and commitment to speaking up for kids, as well as the simple and powerful question he poses with his new book, which side of history will tech choose to be on? Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.